0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV, radio, terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. I just want to very quickly, as I always do before formally introducing my guest of each week, I just want to give a shout out of gratitude uh, to my corporate sponsors, Halton Honda and Living Fearlessly, for believing. And myself, and the content we deliver globally each week with my guest. I also wish to thank my family and friends over at C Suite Radio Network. We're once again following the live show. You can eventually find the podcast link of each interview of each week with each guest. So, who is my guest today? Well, my guest is a gentleman by the name of Michael O'Brien. Michael O'Brien helps sales and marketing leaders who are juggling it all slay the internal feelings of worry and doubt so they can accomplish complete success. Before starting his executive coaching firm, Peloton Coaching and Consulting, Michael spent over two decades in the pharmaceutical bio industry in roles that range from sales to marketing to executive leadership. He's also very lucky to be alive. On July 11, 2001, Michael was struck head-on by a speeding SUV while out on a training bike ride. He cons- considers it his last bad day and shares his journey from being a human doer to to a human being in his best, selling memoir, shift, creating better tomorrows, and donates all the proceeds to the World Bicycle Relief. Finally, Michael is an active volunteer and corporate sponsor for the Healthcare Business Women's Association and an advocate for gender parity. He lives in Bergen County, New Jersey with his wife, two daughters, three dogs, and Rosie the Cat. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. How are you, our friend?
1: Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. And I just have to say, I love the intro music. I love myself a little Lady Gaga. (laughs) Awesome stuff.
0: Well, it's a good way to set the tone and get people jazzed up. So thank you for mentioning that. I'm glad that that resonates with you.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, so you know, as everybody knows, um, my whole approach, my style, my preference for interviewing people is always uh, unscripted. I believe it makes for a much more authentic organic discussion, but I am always interested, particularly for the listeners' benefit as well, asking one of the key questions in terms of what precipitated where you are today in terms of what it was that you felt was either initially a calling or whatever it was that aligned you on the path of what you used to do once upon a time and getting on to the trajectory of what it is you do today, Michael?
1: Yeah, so great question, Lisa. So I would say the seed was planted, you mentioned in the bio, like my last bad day, July 11th, 2001. And when I was in the ICU, I mumbled a guy's name. or kept on repeating it to my wife. And the guy's name is David Kolb. And he was the first guy that I knew who was a professional coach. And I knew in that moment that a seed was planted, that I would follow in his footsteps and one day get into executive coaching and inspirational self-development work and motivating others. Because I just, I love working with people and I love helping people reach their full potential. So that, was, that seed was planted back in 2001, and there was a lot of watering and fertilizing and tilling of the soil, like and that. in 2000, 2014, I started my own firm.
0: Congratulations. Well, I want to talk about, let's talk about the accident. So it fascinates me because I myself have almost had a near-death experience and many people who I've interviewed or who I followed or books I've read or TED Talks, whatever the case may be, many people who have encountered that type of specific incident, they talk about the deeper levels of how that then transformed every aspect of their life. In terms of, really stepping into an awakening of some sort so what was it about that accident and I'm glad you're here today to be here to talk and that you're alive um wonderful uh but what was it about that incident that you felt aside from changing vocation in the landscape of your life what internally on a deeper level changed for you
1: well, I think the big thing that changed is a awareness. And mm-hmm. I think and you, the work that you do is amazing. And I know you know a lot about mindfulness and consciousness. And for mm-hmm. me, the accident sort of gave me this awareness and also some acceptance that I was in the business of chasing happiness. I, I would often talk about I'll be happy when, like when I thought about my career. Mm-hmm. And I had all the really cool external markers of what, one, what someone wants in their career, the title, some of the money, the the toys, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't necessarily happy or successful within. So the joy, the happiness, the fulfillment within. And I just was on this, again, like a hamster on its treadmill or on its wheel, just chasing happiness. And I realized that if I was going to become the best I could possibly be mm-hmm. and stop comparing myself to everyone else out there, which is is an invitation for judgment, self-judgment, that I had to stop chasing happiness. I had to stop being a human doer and actually be present and, and be happiness or be happy, uh, mm-hmm. along with a whole bunch of other things that I had, I had. I had choice in the matter in terms of how I wanted to show up and um, face the world each day. And that was... That was probably fundamentally the big thing that I realized through this whole journey that I'm on.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm going to challenge you for a moment. So um, when you talk about the human doer, and I certainly get that, but for somebody who's as successful as you are, even if you've scaled it back or you've reconfigurated what your definition of success is and the ways in which you've remolded your life to adapt to that, you know, you're obviously very accomplished. You're somebody who, you know, is goal-oriented, somebody who is immersed in empowerment, empowering other people to empower themselves. So that still entails, a, you know, a grind of some sort. That still entails being on for other people as well as being on for yourself so that you can continually monitor the growth uh, and barometer of your own success. So, you know, do, have you really truly scaled back from being a human doer? Yeah,
1: so... So that's a great question. I love that you challenged me on it. So I still do a whole bunch of different things, right? So, you know, I, I had a great career. I moved from the time I was, uh, had my accident to a director level to managing $4 billion in a team of a thousand people and now a successful practice. So I still do things. It's more about being present mm-hmm. and le- leading with that, leading with awareness and consciousness as opposed to you know what's happening current day that we're all you know we're all sort of distracted right we're all busy when i ask people like hey how are you doing a lot of people say well i'm busy and they're just they're sort of going through life without a level of mindfulness and consciousness and they're just doing uh-huh. without really any clear vision for what they're going after and they sort of get sometimes they get hung up on the final outcome they're really attached to that so my approach now is Detaching from, you know, still have a vision, but detaching from the outcome and being really focused in on, on the process and how I want to show up and being present for not only myself, but for everyone else around me. So I can do the deep work that's necessary to actually make a difference in the world as opposed to this reactive quality. I think that many people have today because we are so. Consumed with our activities. So, yes, I still do a whole bunch of everything, and I talk to my clients about doing a whole bunch of everything. Mm -hmm. But it's around prioritization, being present, and, and really understanding that we get to choose how we look at the world, sort of in the spirit that we go where our eyes go. And we can shift our eyes in a multitude of different directions, and we shift them in the right way, and I learned this through my recovery, we can see a whole bunch of different opportunity that we can take advantage of.
0: Very true. Beautiful. And I want to ask you this, too, because, I, again, going back to the fact that I, myself, and a lot of other people who have had near-death experiences, they talk about a different level of um, emotional intuitives too like in terms of emotional intelligence uh and sometimes even feeling more tapped into what would precipitate certain types of emotions things before people would be oblivious to things people might have uh once upon a time be desensitized to numb to how has your emotional psyche changed
1: oh oh completely right and you know i know it's the standard uh, interview answer is like i have switched 180 degrees, but in a lot of ways it it has, you know, back, back before, you know, my accident before my last bad day, I was your typical, I, I don't want to say a typical dude, but in many ways I was, you know, I had, you know, I was married. We were, we we're married seven years at that point in time. We're now married 23. My daughters were three and a half years old and seven months old at the time of the accident. And I was really just, Doing what I thought society wanted me to do. I didn't really have a lot of awareness and my emotional intelligence, you know, was, it was good, but it certainly wasn't great. Through my recovery, I've been able to develop a keen sense of that. And, and tied to that too is the ability to have conversational intelligence because I'm a big believer that the conversations that we have in life drive our success. They drive our relationships. They build our cultures, they build our countries. And when we have great conversations, not only with ourselves, because that's the most important one, uh-huh. but we start to have better conversations with others, our t- intuition, I think, grows and develops. And we can, we can not only go with that, but we can also go with all the data that we have in corporate America. So, or corporate Canada, right? So, <laughs> so, and I, I think there's a good, there's, there needs to be an integration of looking at data, but also trusting your intuition when we can combine those two together we can make brilliant decisions that can actually change more lives out there
0: beautiful now because this is all about living fearlessly that being you know the nature the premise of the show it's very much my calling my purpose i'm very clear on that um, you know, what What as a result of your accident did you grapple with in terms of having to self-talk yourself back into A, either getting back on your bike or B, not going through each day with some level of trepidation, looking over your shoulder, wondering if the next shoe is going to drop? What did you have to work through to overcome as a result of that accident?
1: Well, at the core, my self-talk, my inner voice, my gremlin, my inner critic Uh Uh, whatever we want to label it as, you know, so we all have our own cute name for it. But coming out of the ICU, when the doctor started telling me about the extent of my injuries and the fact that the accident probably should not have occurred, but it did, the driver had to revoke license. Oh I, what what happened to me is I went dark, Lisa, so quickly. I got angry, bitter, revengeful. I thought he took from me, I will take from him, an eye for an eye. Uh-huh. And I started to think about all the things I lost, the like lens of scarcity, all the things I couldn't do anymore, all the things I didn't have. And I labeled myself as a victim, and here's the thing. Everyone around me validated that because we were all in a big, big bunch of hurt, right? We were all... Uh-huh it was all painful and it was all suffering to a certain degree and everyone had a different perspective on it but we were all sort of there together and i realized that i had to change my my inner dialogue my self narrative that Instead of telling myself that I'm a victim, as cheesy as this sounds, I was like, I'm going to be a victor. Right. And because I, I didn't have another V word and I thought Mm -hmm. I needed like another V word to go with victim. (laughs) But I, you know, one of the things I realized about myself, and I think this is a superpower of anyone who's an entrepreneur in sales or in marketing or advertising is that we're resilient as all get out. Right. And I was like, you know what? That, that was part of my, Superpower back before my accident. And and I'm not going to stand for this. I'm a victim story. I'm going to be one big, resilient, fill in the blank, you know, victor. And that's the story I'm going to tell myself. And and I had to work on that. And there's certainly been moments since that, you know, that moment in my recovery where I've had challenging days, rough days where, you know, my inner critic comes and pays a visit Maybe I do a project and it's not good enough uh, from his perspective. But what I've learned over time is that we're all going to have moments where that little gremlin is going to pop into our head. What I've been able to develop, and this is what I try to help pe- other people do, is to shift out of that mode of self-talk that holds us back mm. into a self-narrative that can actually propel us forward. So I, it still comes to visit. I just don't let it. Uh, hang out with me as long as I once used to before my accident.
0: Okay, one more question about the accident, and then we're going to move on to other things. But um, did you ever have the opportunity to have some type of, uh, you know, issue some kind of victim impact statement or receive some kind of face-to-face closure or any additional contact to know what became of this person who was behind the wheel of the SUV?
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So we had to go out to New Mexico for a traf- traffic court, and it was this small little courthouse in the pueblo because you know my accident happened on Native American land. So we we went there, and again there was like about ten people in the small small courthouse that was really designed for probably like five people. And we really didn't have a chance to connect, although, you know, he gave a statement and I gave a statement. But what I, what I did as I moved forward is I really worked on forgiveness mm-hmm. and not, not necessarily because he deserved forgiveness, but because I did. Yeah. And I learned something really powerful from a woman named Eva Kaur. She's, uh, lives in Indiana. She's a Holocaust survivor. Her and her twin sister survived Auschwitz and Birkenau. And we um had a chance to meet her, actually. She gave us, a, a, along with others, a tour of uh Birkenau, the concentration camp. And one person asked her, like, hey, Evo, how do you feel about the Germans and about the Nazis? Do you still hate them? And she said, listen, I have forgiven them, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because I do. If I carried around this energy, I wouldn't become the best version of who I could be, in so many words or less. And I realized if she could forgive them, Mm -hmm. I can forgive the driver and let that energy go, release it, so I could be the best possible version of who I could be.
0: Excellent. Beautiful. Well, I'm so glad for your own benefit and for, you know, energetically and for being present for your clients and uh, being focused on your family and just rediscovering and reclaiming your own life that you were able to get to that place because unfortunately, as you and I both know, not everybody manages to get there. It's not an easy journey. It's easier said than done. We all know that. Uh, but it truly is the gift that you give yourself ultimately if you're going to flourish and have the best quality of life ever. Uh, so good on you. Um, which, for what you just mentioned, what we just discussed there, Michael, that's a good segue in terms of I would be interested, as I'm sure the global listeners are too, who are some of your most pivotal, profound, tangible or intangible mentors uh, outside of your example of Eva, who I'm sure in many respects is. Um, but who, who's really paved the way for you in one way or another?
1: Well, so I I'm not going to mention any big icons, although I do follow some of the big icons out there that are mm-hmm. in the self-development field. And but there are a lot of like unsung heroes and heroes out there that really yes. do inspire me. So one of them I previously mentioned, David Cole, the first person I knew as an executive coach. He's up in Portland, Maine. He actually just came out with a book, but he he inspired me that that you could bring a sense of uh, emotion and spirituality to corporate America to be a leader that leads from the inside out. And so he planted that seed right before my accident. And again, we've been watering that seed ever since. Mm-hmm. I've had some beautiful mentors. You know, the very first mentor I had in the pharmaceutical industry was a woman named Susan Roach. And I learned a lot about just being a leader from her, but also – the issues around gender parity and my involvement with the Healthcare Business Women's Association. So these people, you know, they don't have 10,000 or a million followers on Instagram or Facebook, but they've made a profound impact in my life. And I, I just, you know, I, I love those folks. They're, they may be a little bit more relatable. And again, mm-hmm. I still follow like the, the big guys like you know, Anthony, Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss and, mm-hmm. you know, Lewis Howes and, um, you know, Marie Florio and all, all those folks that, to learn how to run a business. But yeah. those day in and day out folks really do inspire me and been mentors to me ever since.
0: Beautiful, Well, and I think it's important that we give tribute and we celebrate the people who are, as you said, unsung because those are the people who usually generally leave the biggest imprint on us. Yes, there's so many other people who are immersed in the industry of what it is that we feel a calling to where we can respectfully say, wow, like what they've done is is fantastic, and I, I know why they would have the following in which they do because I'm one of them. Um, but the people who generally meet, make the most... Uh, profound impact are the people who have paved the way on some personal level in our tangible lives. So I appreciate that you mentioned that now in terms of, the industry that we're in, yours being a little bit different in terms of the executive coaching. Uh, we know for what we do in terms of being authors, in terms of, you know, interfacing with clients, it's a very oversaturated industry. So I would be interested to know, Michael, what is it about your specific style of coaching or your practices or um, the way that you – whatever signature to you, what makes you – in your opinion of yourself, stand out apart from the rest?
1: Well, yeah, great question, Lisa. I would I would play back some of the feedback I've gotten from my actual clients. And I think one of the first things they tell me is that my authenticity and my relatedness that mm-hmm. like they're like, we can just relate to you. You speak our language. So when people hire me they don't hire me for my credentials, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of like where I've got my coach certifications, like International Coach Federation. They don't necessarily even hire me for my book or my story. Obviously, they may do that for speaking engagements, but for one-on-one coaching, mm-hmm. they hire me because I've been in the trenches. You know, I yeah. speak their language. I've walked a mile in their shoes, and they, they can feel the empathetic connection that we have together. Uh, especially as it relates to any client that happens to be in healthcare in the pharmaceutical or biotech or advertising firms So like, you get me. And I know it because we really connect and you're relatable. And, and that, that is some of the best feedback I, I hear. Like when I, when I try to reach out to people, even when I do my keynotes, it's more mm-hmm. of a, it's more of a big coffee clutch with about a thousand people in the room or <laughs> maybe even 50. I just, I literally like bring up a stool and I grab a cup of coffee and I want to have a chat with uh, whoever is in the audience and really sort of connect, make that type of connection that releases our oxytocin as opposed to this big theatrical presentation where I'm talking at people. Mm what people i think love about how i show up is that we're together and it's this sort of power with type of vibe as opposed to um, i am like a guru that's sort of power over if you will mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so i think that's the thing that really sort of sticks out in the in the eyes and the minds of my clients
0: Fantastic. So let's talk about the results. You know, how is it as a result of your guidance, your mentorship, your leadership, your particular flavor to what it is you bring to people's lives? How are, ne- how are they now showing up for themselves as it relates to results?
1: So well one one of my clients gave me uh sent me a text a few months ago. He's like, I feel like I'm cheating at work and I was like, You gotta tell me a little bit more about that. <laughs> he goes, I just feel like I have an extra gear that no one else has. So certainly a whole bunch of my clients have seen their careers progress higher in the org chart. They got bigger titles and more money and more responsibility and all that jazz. And that is wonderful. That's the External markers of success that I talk to them about because Mm -hmm. I work with hard-charging people that want to have career success for a variety of different reasons. But I would say the hallmark of my coaching is that now we've matched all that great career progression with inner success. And those two together, external and inner result in complete success, at least my definition of it. So Mm -hmm. they're calmer, they're more present, they have more fulfillment, they're happier. So they're able to actually like surf the waves of stress in the busyness of their corporate lives and their family lives and being more present with those around them. So their relationships change at home. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's actually some of the best feedback I get when someone says, you know what, my spouse, my wife tells me I'm a better person at home. Oh. To me, that, forget about the title and their salary increases and all that jazz. Like, when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, we really hit the mark. Cause for me, I, I do believe we can have both, but to have that, cause most of them don't have that to the, to the degree that they want. So for us to reach there, that, that's a warm fuzzy in my mind because That was something that I didn't truly have before my accident, and now I'm in the position to help others get it, to learn from my experiences corporately and also my recovery, so they can they can live with complete happiness and 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 complete success.
0: Amazing. Well, let me ask you this then, in terms of clarification for myself, would is it safe to say that a good portion of your clients are Type A personality who are in corporate America? Would that be accurate?
1: Oh, that would be accurate. Yeah, they're type A. Uh, most of them are all corporate America folks, uh dr- director to chief operating officer, CEO types.
0: Okay, so I asked that question because going back to your concept and, and, and your epiphany, if you will, about your accident having transformed your entire shift of mindset to becoming more, uh, human being focused as opposed to human doer. How does somebody, because we have a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of CEOs who tune into the show, how do they aspire within corporate America and continue to scale, continue to leverage without being a human doer like how do we incorporate that so they've got the best of both worlds but they're doing it successfully in a way that they are achieving the results that they're wishing to obtain as a result of being mentored and coached by you
1: yeah so i would say it comes down to having greater awareness i'm Mm -hmm. a big believer in in today's world especially down here in america and probably other places across the globe where your list you know listeners are we are We like to think that stress is our big evil, but actually stress in the right amounts can actually help us get faster and stronger and more intelligent. Yes. But when the, when the stress is chronic and constant, which it can be for a lot of these type A personalities, that's only, that's what leads to burnout and fatigue and disengagement. So my big thing that I try to help them with is around awareness, mindfulness and the whole art of recovery. So we have room, we have space to do our great thinking. Our reflection, our strategy, our innovation. So, and that actually helps them not even not only maintain their edge, but actually accentuate it. So they actually get more stuff done. So, a lot of them are like, "Hey, I'm juggling it all. I got major balls in the air." But I, I wanna make sure that you know what got me to this spot, you know, I'm putting more tools in my toolbox to help me get to the next spot. Okay. And one of one of the tools that we put into their toolbox is this the whole art of mindfulness and awareness so we can have better connections with those around us. And and actually weave in just doses of recovery so they're not constantly on because we don't necessarily make our best decisions when we're in a reactive mode we Uh make our best decisions when we're in a reflective mode and that bit of it and at first you know with some of my executives they may see it may seem a little woo-woo to them but as we talk further they're like yeah this is actually sort of the secret sauce or somewhat magical Uh and it's sort of like how um I imagine you run into this a lot, Lisa, the whole, um, practice of meditation, right? We're not yes. totally there yet. And when I do, <laughs> when I do talks, maybe like 3% of the people raise their hand, but I do think five to 10 years down the road, meditation is going to be a big part of every executive's practice that's actually going to help them achieve greater results than they're achieving today.
0: Excellent. Well, that's a segue into where I want to go here a little bit based on some things you were saying a few seconds ago uh, in answering that question. So I'm sure it's been your experience, Michael, when you've run into people at the CEO level, uh, they're very, you know, they're very successful, they're very proficient in many skills in order to be at that level of leadership. But now we understand times are changing. You know, the culture of the working environment, when we're talking about millenni- millennials, there's a whole bunch of things that people have to change in order to retain their staff, in order to be continually innovative, uh, to want to keep people motivated where they don't feel like they're stagnating and it's not, you know, they're not struggling with complacency, so to speak. So... You know, I'm sure you've encountered people that you work with, again, who are successful, but they might be completely oblivious to the fact that they do need to change or that there is resistance with the staff team, whether it be subtle, whether it be non-expressed, but you can just tell based on people walking out the door. So how do you work with that individual?
1: Well, that individual – the, the individuals come to me in two different ways. One, their company says, hey, you need a coach, and here's a coach. And mm-hmm. hopefully he or she's interviewed a few coaches so we have the right type of connection. Mm-hmm. Now, other people will just call call me directly and say, hey, I want to work with you, and my company will sponsor your coaching. So that person is already engaged like mentally that I want to change. The mm-hmm. The person before, we have to bring them along a little bit. But mm-hmm. what we start off with is – You know, I hear from their sponsors, the people supporting the coaching, but I also hear from them, like, what do they want to get out of it and where do they want to take their lives and their career, their professional career as well as their personal lives. And then we do um, a couple different assessments to help them gain some visibility in terms of their own leadership style. What are they doing too much of, maybe not enough of, what's just right, sort of like in the whole spirit of Goldilocks and the three bears. Mm. And there's a really great assessment out there that I give to all my executives called the Leadership Versatility Index that gives them a really great view of of just that. So we start there and then from there we have some awareness and then we can work on certain things that they want to incorporate, right? So we try not to take on way too much. We try to get really focused so we can be really present with the work. And we, you know, I serve as their strategy partner, their accountability partner, and to actually help in- infuse a lot of that into their their natural style, right? And actually develop new muscles because mm-hmm. that's what the leaders at those levels need is they, they've been exercising the same muscle for quite some time. And that muscle or those behaviors has helped them get to a certain level. But as you mentioned, in today's complex, ever changing world, you have to develop more agility, more versatility, more, mm-hmm. more muscles in order to actually maintain your relevance in the marketplace. And so we, we focus in just on that
0: fantastic and how do you continue to maintain your relevance in the marketplace
1: well so you know, I mentioned a couple of different people I follow I'm in a few masterminds with those individuals and I I'm a thirsty learner like I love to gobble it up you know through mm-hmm. podcasts like yourselves there's the one that you put out there Lisa and and other podcasts and just ongoing training so there's a couple different you know programs out there or, or seminars that I attend but I also I'm a big believer in having a coach. So I think it's a really great question to ask anyone who's about to hire a coach mm-hmm. to ask him or her, do you have a coach? So yes. I, you know, and there, the, but the thing is there's a ton of coaches out there that don't have a coach. And it's like, well, if you believe in the practice, why don't you have one yourself? Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in my coach, but also, you know, spending a good chunk of my time and just making myself a better coach so I can be better for my clients because they're coming to me and they're coming to me at a time of need, right? There's some pain points in their professional lives or personal lives and they want me to help help them solve it together. And so I know I need to continuously improve my game, improve Mm -hmm. my offering so I can be there for my clients when my clients come and ask for the the assistance.
0: Beautiful. So a couple things, and I, I always have simultaneous thoughts that come to me, and I, I always try not no to problem. drop them. Okay, so I, I want to, in a moment, uh, go to talk about your book and where people can find your book. Um, but I also want to know, too, um, when we talk about leadership, right, leadership isn't right now for a lot of things that we see going on in the world on the global scale and in our global community. Uh, there's a very conflicting... Uh, question mark around leadership and some people who are younger, impressionable don't really follow history to know the contrast of how other people perhaps have embodied leadership or they demonstrate it. I don't want to turn this into a political debate, but I mean, this subject comes up. We're all impacted for different reasons on different scales. Um, what would be your thoughts about what we're also witnessing in the world about leadership and how would you define it?
1: Well, so we, we, it's, it's certainly an interesting stage, um, that it's, it's actually a big he- head scratcher. So I, I would yeah. say, I would say this in terms of what, what we see globally and obviously certainly what we see here in the states is that we've become in, in some ways more tribal, but we've always been tribal, right? We've, since the beginning of time, we've formed into tribes. The thing is here in the states, we've been dominated by one tribe for the longest time and that's the white guy. Right. Okay. And I'm, I'm part of that tribe. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and the white guy has had the airwaves. It's been, he's, he's been the one sort of controlling the narrative mm-hmm. about what's happening. And what's, what's beautiful about the internet, heck, the internet brought us together. Social media brought us together today and mm-hmm. connects now globally mm-hmm. that we have all these different tribes that are popping up and asking for a seat at the table and now they have voice, which I think is incredible because now we can let, you know, merit and strength and warmth and competence and all these wonderful qualities drive how the narrative goes forward. And right now we're struggling with hearing, hearing all the different tribes. So there's a lot of noise in the system, but the problem is, is that no one's being heard or very few people are being heard. We're all running to our tribal corners. We're tuning into our tribal radio or TV shows, and we're trying to outshout each other. We're listening not to connect and understand, not with empathy, but we're listening to reply, thinking if we're the last person who shouts or we're the last person who tweets something, we win the argument. And that's, that's the biggest myth out there, like this whole, like, Feeling like like life is a game that we need to win. It's really a game that we just play. And we can look at the world through a lens of fear and scarcity, which is certainly happening now, right? So yes. fear is being peddled like no one's business. And there's this scarcity model that we're all, it's basically prompted people to look over the shoulder all the time. And when we're looking mm-hmm. over our shoulder, we're not looking ahead. So we need to have leaders that are more about abundance, how we can, you know, lift everybody up and make everybody stronger. This is one of the hallmarks of America. This is how we got founded, right? Mm-hmm. And so right now, you know, it, we have a lot of tension. We have a lot of struggle. But I do think, and as I tell a lot of people who, you know, I live outside of New York City, so we know how this area voted. And I look at this as like, this is like one of the biggest mirrors that we could put up in front of us as a nation yes. and really look at ourselves, that that self-talk, right? That we talk about as individuals, but now as a country, who who are we and who do we want to become? And I think we have a moment here that actually, although it feels painful and it feels like a big struggle and everyone's shouting at, you, at each other, this is one of our great moments
0: mm-hmm.
1: to say, okay, enough of this, enough of this divisive behavior. We are going to come together. We're going to have a different conversation and we're going to be more involved and more engaged. And I think there's a lot of data out there that suggests that that's happening. Um, But this is a long-term thing. You know, this wasn't built overnight. Mm-hmm. It was built drip by drip. And it's going to take that discipline, that resilience drip by drip to make it better. But And I'm encouraged that we can, but certainly right now, There's a lot of leaders trying to motivate people through fear. And I'm a big believer that you can motivate through love, not necessarily romantic love, but compassionate love and get much better results over the long haul. And that's that's the case if you're like in Washington, D.C., in corporate America, you know, or the capitals across the great the the great globe that we live on. So. Um,
0: Fantastic. You explained yeah. that extremely well. I love when you started out explaining the whole tribal community, uh, different pockets of that and, and people screaming the loudest and tuning into their own tribal TV, radio, all that. You, you explained that extremely well. I like that. Um, so what do you foresee? What do you predict? I know you said within your answer that you believe you, you're hopeful. Um, but, you know, in terms of humanity, do you, do you think we're going through a rebirthing, a shedding? Of old skin process here, uh, and we're going to come out stronger, uh, as a connected global community, more cohesive, more collaborative community, a more unified community. Or do you think there's going to be more of the same and we're just kind of seeing the not so nice stuff that might be here to stay? What, what, what are you, what are you predicting right now, Michael?
1: Well, so obviously I'm optimistic by nature. Yeah. So I think. I don't think the next election, so we have an election in the States in 2018 and then again another one in 2020. I don't Mm -hmm. think the next two elections sort of pivots us back to like a happier place right away. It's not going to be like this light switch. But I do think with more involvement, more community activism and and more people expressing a voice about the type of behavior that we want to see from each other and our leaders, that will slowly but surely start to change course. And we see it. We see it in some of the minor elections in the United States so far. Mm-hmm. But certainly there's a, there's a population that, you know, uh, fully supports one way of looking at the world. And I think there's a, you know, there's another part of the population that sees it differently. And then there's a, a group in the middle. So mm-hmm. I do think that we are in more of a drip by drip. Uh, I like to say, because I'm a cyclist, pedal stroke by pedal stroke type of environment or situation as opposed to this big aha light switch or shift mm-hmm. that will occur. But I, I do think we can get to a better spot. But, you know, wh- what all this behavior comes down to is a lot of insecurity, right? Yes. So the machoism and the bravado and the anger and all that jazz, was well, no matter where we see it again, corporate America or otherwise, mm-hmm. it's all a mask for some insecurity within, like, like the insecurity that happens when our inner critic gets the best of us, best of us when we think we're not enough, that we may not necessarily be able to be successful in the new world. So we're going to criticize the new world and we're going to do everything in our power to keep the old world as the status quo. So. Mm-hmm. I tend to, I try to look, and sometimes it's difficult because there's also, we see a lot of hatred that I try to look at things through the lens of empathy to say, Hey, like what's going on in your world that, that makes you say what you say, or, you know, sort of influences what you believe. And maybe we can start a conversation where we can really hear each other because that's the the other thing, at least here in the States is that there's a lot of invisibility, right? People Mm -hmm. feel lonely. They don't feel like they they're heard or seen. And, and when you feel that and you have that sort of society of loss, you're going to have extreme things that are happening. And you see it a lot with gun violence and mm-hmm. terrorism. Like when you feel despair you, in order to be seen and heard, you're going to take on extreme measures. And right now we have a lot of the extreme measures being part of our society. But I think if we can all hear each other and see each other and, you know, learn to disagree without being disagreeable, we can get back to a better, better spot. That's my, that's my optimism.
0: Yeah, well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I too always err on the side of being truly, authentically, an eternal optimist. And um, you know, where people project the doom and gloom, and this is anarchy, and you know, it can't get any worse, and we've hit the bottom. And you no, know, I think sometimes even if this is perceivably the bottom, there's only one way to go up, in my opinion. So if this is where we're at, and we continue to plummet even a little bit further, if that's even possible. Um, I think resounding, we're going to come back and we're going to come back stronger and we're going to come back wiser and we're going to come back more compassionate and more empathetic. Um, So to me, you know, that's worth it. Short-term pain, long-term gain. That's how I look at it. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's delve into talking about your book. And I want to give you an opportunity, Michael, to let it be known where people can purchase your book, uh, whether people can get an inscribed copy of your book. Um, I'm sure it's part of your speaking circuit and you sell books at your speaking gigs. Um, But let's talk about your book. We know what birthed the book in terms of the inspiration and the motivation behind it. Um, But what would you, without giving away too much, because you want people to obviously purchase the book (laughs) themselves and enjoy it and learn something from it, um, but what else could you maybe share is a, a little bit of a nugget about your book and why you think everybody should be reading this.
1: Yeah, so I would say this that it's a very relatable story and the people that read it, they're like they really connect. They can see themselves in my story. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a um something bad happened to me and now I climb Mount Everest. Right. And now I'm putting that up as the definition of success. And there's certainly a lot of books out there, a lot of stories out there that are just like that. And I get inspired by them, but my story is a little bit different. You know, I, I had obviously something horrific happen to me and to my family. And coming out of it, what I wanted was just to be the best version of who I could be and maximize my life so I can change other lives. And so when people read it, they're like, wow, I, I I feel myself. In this story you know it's not even just seeing it's like I feel it Mm. and the tips at the end in terms of how to be more of a human being as opposed to a human doer Mm -hmm. people they're easy to grasp and easy to sort of implement into their lives I think the big thing though with my my book shift is the whole contribution to world bicycle relief and so a lot of people when I left corporate America and they I started meeting new people in the coaching and entrepreneurial community, they were like, Michael, you got to write your story. It's going to be great for your speaking gigs. It's going to be great for your business. You have to write a book. Mm-hmm. You'll make a lot of money. And so I had all these notes and journals from my recovery, and I went out at it and started writing my story. And I would write, and I would stop for a bit, Lisa, and then I would get stuck, mm-hmm. and I would write some more. And then I realized the whole idea that my story was all about making money just didn't seem fulfilling to me. Now, I know most authors write their book to make money, and and I'm not judging that approach. Just for me, it just didn't feel like enough. And then I had a moment where I was taking a course with Seth Godin, one of my, like, iconic – Yeah, Yeah. he's one of my iconic mentors, Mm -hmm. and he asked this question to the group. He was like, what is it for? And I was like, wow, what is my book for? And I realized that my book was primarily for my daughters, who were too young to remember pre-accident daddy and Mm -hmm. too young to really understand how incredible their mom is and my wife is in, in terms of helping the family stay together and nursing me back to health. And it's also for all the people that are going to go through a struggle or have been through a struggle, sort of the common man and common woman. And when I had that, that, that was a big awakening. But also I realized that my book was about the message and not about making money. And so I went to World Bicycle Relief. And World Bicycle Relief, they're based in Chicago. But they help girls in countries like Malawi and Kenya and Zimbabwe conquer the challenge of distance by giving them a bicycle. And so they help That's them awesome. gain they help them gain mobility, which is something that I lost mm-hmm. during my recovery. And I was like, this is about the message and it's about helping change a life somewhere else in the world, because I believe if you change a life anywhere, you change lives everywhere. And what World Bicycle Relief does is they come in to their villages in remote places of Kenya where they're walking literally six to ten kilometers each way to school. And they have to, they get to a point where they have to think about dropping out or get on the back of a motorbike, which is driven by a young man, which just exposes them to sexual violence. And they come in and they give them a bike. And so by giving them a bike, that commute to school is uh, lessened significantly. So they stay in school, they graduate, they marry later, they have smaller families, and they have more economic vitality and independence. Beautiful. And that not only changes their lives, it changes the lives of their whole family, their whole village, their whole tribe. Mm-hmm. And so for me, what I try to relay when I do speaking engagements and the audience members all have a book, I tell them, like, when you read this book, hopefully it's changing your life, but know that you've made a contribution to change someone else's life. Love And it. If, if we show up with that attitude, wow, we can... Going back to the optimism that we talked about, like we can change this planet by doing that. So, um, so I think that's like the big thing behind, behind it. People will be inspired. They'll be motivated, but there is a good warm fuzzy that comes from reading it because you, you've just changed one girl's life halfway around the world. If Amazing. You, and, uh, so people can buy it. Through Amazon, through Barnes & Noble, it's all there. There's hard copy, paperback, and obviously a Kindle version. Mm-hmm. And if people want an autograph copy, they can go to my website, which is michaelobrienshift.com, and I send out autograph copies to the States as well as Canada, so mm-hmm. people can order those copies right there uh, via my website.
0: Super. Well, congratulations. You're quite the remarkable human being, and anybody who – understands the importance um i think it's due diligence truly in terms of paying it forward and being of service and especially when you know people don't know what they don't know um and people don't know until they connect with your book necessarily to what degree it's going to transform them or get them off the fence in their own lives or show through your example you know what i might Render myself, and again, this goes back to what you said and what I talk about quite extensively about the whole inner real and the self-dialogue. People sometimes look at their circumstances and they're self-deprecating and they think, you know, well, who am I? I mean, regardless of whether you're an author, whether you've got a global presence, whether you've got a lot of be- people following you on social media, that's irrelevant. I think the fact that we're all individually here speaks to the fact that there's a miracle there. There's a purpose there. There's something bigger than yourself that you're meant to do. And not everybody at this point in their lives has tapped into w- knowing what that is. And sometimes like myself and sometimes like you, Michael, it takes, you know, a near-death experience or other uh, significant events where the light bulb goes on and it's like, okay, yeah, I've kind of been walking around in a fog. There's much more work to be done and there's more people to connect with and there's more people to help. I got to get going here. Um, So, I really want to say thank you very much for everything that you've brought to myself and to the listening audience and eventually the podcast subscribers. Once this is calibrated, um, I think you're amazing. You're welcome to come back here anytime, Michael. And for the people who are listening, I want to thank you for the gift of your time. Uh, I know it's a weekday. It's a work day. A lot of you won't be uh, tuning in until you hear the podcast, but for those who are joining us around the world, I want to say thank you very much. I encourage you to reach out to Michael O'Brien to get a copy of his book. Uh, maybe even become a client of his, uh, reach out to him on social media. He's got a lot of great things to offer uh, and is certainly enriching and impacting many people's lives. So no reason for you not to be one of them as well. So to the listening audience, once again, I want to thank you very much for supporting us here over on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. I want to once again thank my corporate sponsors, Halton Honda and Forever for believing in myself and my guests of each week and the content of what we bring globally. I also want to shout out to iHeartRadio who has accepted my program onto their platform so I want to thank them for that as well and giving me another opportunity to get the Living Fearlessly message out there because again people don't know what they don't know so I invite you to, I'm uplifting you to fear less and to live more and I invite you to listen to the podcast once it's released and I want to thank my friends and family again over at C-Suite Radio Network, we're again following the live show of my guest of each week you can find the podcast link also on my host page Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Love and gratitude to everybody. We'll be back here again next Friday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 10 Central, 11 Eastern. All my best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald.